the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. For those of you who don't know about the show, the show's in different parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, the second part of the show, it's either nostalgia, politics, history. We're going to be talking a little bit about politics and a little bit about history. Now, as far as politics are concerned, you all know this is an election year this year. And we've had a number of congressional candidates. Buzz Patterson, who used to carry the football for Bill Clinton, wrote a book, Dereliction of Duty, from those years. And our old friend Burgess Owens used to play safety for the New York Jets and the Oakland Raiders, and he's running for Congress in Utah. But today we're going to be running closer to home. We're going to go with the person who has the best shot of turning a seat in the New York City area, in the metropolitan area, from Democrat to Republican, we're going to be talking to Nicole Maliotakis and her bid to unseat Max Rose, who voted for impeachment. Then we're going to go and we're going to talk about, you know, this is, we're upcoming to the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, which is also, which is signaling International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And there, you know, we, we've had more than a few of those stories on our show over the years, talking about the people who were involved in saving refugees from from the Nazis. So we got a, a pretty interesting story from Mounty Brownstein, who, who's got a book, Two Among the Righteous Few, A Story of Courage in the Holocaust. In the meanwhile, uh, we're going to do some email questions, and Josiah is with us today. And Josiah, what's the first question that you have? Yes, Mr. Connor. So the first question is from Jill, and she says, we recently transferred my parents to homes into an irrevoc- irrevocable trust, which your office helped me with. Thank you. So her question is, do they need to file a special tax return on the homes, if, even if there is no income in the house? Well, if there's no income in the house, there's no reason to file a tax return from the trust. In order to file uh, you know, a tax return, ordinarily you have to have income. And I know it gets a little confusing because the IRS, when you register a trust, the IRS sends out a letter that you have to use a Form 1041 to report the income, which is true. But if there's no income, you don't have to report the income on a, on a 1041. And a lot of times, in a lot of the trusts we do, 
The income goes straight to the parents anyway. It's called the grantor trust, and all the income can get reported on the parents. And the reason I say parents, 90% of the trusts we do are between parents and children. So in that case, in 90% of the trusts we do, the income can be reported under the parent's Social Security number. It's a grantor trust. There might be exceptions. If parents are going to a nursing home, we've got to get income out of their name. We might, we might file a 1041 and have the income reported on the trust income tax return. But ordinarily, 90% of the time, income is supposed to go to the parents. The parents report the income on their income tax return. And of course, if there's no income, and this is one of the confusing parts about the letters you get from the IRS, if there's no income, you don't have to report the income. So I hope that answers the question. Uh, Jose, tell us a little bit about your background. Now, where did you go to law school? Yes. So um, I went to the Pontifical Catholic University of Puerto Rico School of Law. Obviously, that's in Puerto Rico, in a town called Ponce, a very beautiful area. Uh, it's in the south of the island. And once again, I always encourage everybody to go and visit and see for themselves. It's a very old Spanish town, beautiful place. And it was a great experience that I had there. That's where I started my career as an attorney, literally. Okay, now, now somebody asked me, notaries, let's say... You're in Puerto Rico. What are the rules as far as notarization in Puerto Rico? How's it different from the U.S.? Oh, yes. Uh, it's very different, uh, especially in just to like make it simple. In Puerto Rico, in order to be a notary, you first have to become an attorney. So basically, you go to law school. You went through all the years of law school. Then you take the bar. You pass the bar exam. And after that, if you pass, if you pass the bar exam to become a licensed attorney, then you can take the bar to become a notary. So there's literally, you have to take a bar in Puerto Rico in order to be a notary. And that is different, for example, here in New York, that you don't really need to be an attorney in order to practice notary. So that's kind of the main difference between Puerto Rico and the rest of the states. Okay, now let me ask you something. Is a notary more like a European notary? It carries more weight than it does in, in, in the U.S.? Yes, yes. Basically, just to give an example, in Puerto Rico, a notary, every time he notarizes a signature, he's not only notarizing the signature like, hey, this person signed this document on this date. He's giving faith that that person signed that document, but he's also giving credit and faith that of the contents of the document, which kind of exposes the notary to some liability, if any, but... Basically, as you can see, it's a very strictly regulated practice in Puerto Rico. Okay, now each week Kevin McCullough takes a question from our audience. He reads it on his show. And you can hear Kevin McCullough each week from Monday through Friday on WMCA The Mission at 3 o'clock. And you can hear him at 5 o'clock Monday through Friday on 970 The Answer. Of course, he has an extended hour during Wednesdays when John Katsimatidis has an extended hour with uh, Kevin McCullough. So take it away, Kevin. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Uh, I promise you every single week on this show that you're going to get an actual question answered by someone who actually knows what he's talking about. In fact, by his own peer-reviewed uh, uh, colleagues in New York State, he may be the number one authority on all things estate care and elder law. And he joins us once again, Mike Connors of Connors and Sullivan. And Mike, this week's question comes from Paul from Staten Island. He said, I have a question. My sister's incarcerated in upstate New York and has been convicted of a felony. Can she contest my dad's will, even though she's still in prison? Mike Connors, kind of a tricky situation. Yeah, well, the, the short answer is yes, she can contest the will. Just because you're a felon doesn't mean you lose all of your property rights. Now, one of the things on that, she's not able to serve as either executor of dad's estate 
or administrator of dad's estate. And one of the rough parts here, if you serve her with the with the probate petition, she could get a court-appointed lawyer to protect her interests because she can't protect her own interest, which means your probate procedure could go on for years. So if, if dad's mentally competent, we want him to get to avoid probate at all costs. So the best way to do that is? Well, and come to see us and make sure when, you know, he's, he's got real estate, it's in a trust. He has bank accounts. He has somebody else's name on the account. Yeah. So that trust thing, it keeps kind of rearing its head, but it's something oh, yeah. that people should definitely look at. A trust, you know, if you own real estate, the only effective way to transfer real estate from parent to child or the next generation is through a trust agreement, both for combination of taxes, ease of, of doing things, and keeping out of probate. Yeah, uh, very, very good idea. So, friends, uh, take care of that. And if you don't know how to get that done, call Connors & Sullivan, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. They're the only ones I trust on such matters. And make sure you submit your questions. Ask Mike Connors at gmail.com. He'll answer one every week here on Kevin McCullough Radio, and he'll answer even more of them on his show. Ask the Lawyer, uh, Saturday mornings at 8 on AM 570, The Mission, and FM 102.3, and Sunday mornings at 11 on AM 970, The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks again, Kevin. Josias, you, you have another question from the audiences uh, from the email? Yes, Mr. Connor, there's another question. This one is from Holly. It's a very interesting question, okay? And the question is, what happens if my name isn't on the deed or mortgage and my spouse dies? Am I automatically entitled to the home? We didn't have any children. I am concerned if he was to die, would I be entitled to the pay of property even without a will? Assuming your husband has no children, you would, if there was no will, inherit the property. It's always better to have a will. Now, there may or may not be family political reasons why your name should be or should not be on the deed. But the, the, the problem would be if you wanted to sell the property, a title company may ask you to go through court to show that there was no will and that you would be appointed administrator of the estate. Now, if you have no children, if your husband has no children or no grandchildren, and there's no will, the assets in his name alone would pass to his spouse. So, But still, if you wanted to sell quickly, there may be a court proceeding. It would be better to have a will. Maybe, I, I, again, there may be political reasons why your husband doesn't want to put your name on the deed. You know, that'd be a question. But there still can be protections where he puts the house in a trust and it goes to you and you can sell it the day after he's gone and, and usually tax-free. And, and again, those one of the tax questions. Is it better to have both names on the deed? Because if you pass away first, it would be better for your husband tax-wise. If he passes away first, it would be better for you if his name, if your name is not on the deed directly. So that that's one of the things to talk over, you know, which goes back to the old question. You know, there's no one right answer for everybody. You have to talk it over. But ordinarily, if you have no will, you're married, you have no children, all the assets that are in your name alone would pass to your spouse. Now, that does not count. That does not say if there's a bank account and trust for someone else or there's a bank account joint with someone else, it would ordinarily would go to that person. The surviving spouse always has the option of putting a claim in against the estate. If the surviving spouse feels that he or she did not receive a, 30 of, a third of the total estate from the deceased party. So again, there are a lot of political reasons. Maybe your husband doesn't want to put your name on the deed because the, he got the house from his parents and they said, hey, don't put your wife's name on it. And he wants to honor their promises, whatever. But there's still other things we can do. And if you, if you want to schedule an appointment at Connors and Sullivan, you can always do that. You can give our office a call at 718 618-238-6500. Now we're going to transition over to our interview 
process of the show. First, we're going to be talking to Nicole Maliotakis, who's running for Congress in the 11th New York, that's Staten Island, and part of the Bay Ridge section of Brooklyn. And then we're going to talk to Marty Brownstein about a book, Two Among the Righteous Few, A Story of the Courage in the Holocaust. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit ccbq.org. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, this year is an election year, and not only for president, but every member of Congress goes for re-election in the year 2020. And it's very important, you know, to win some of these local congressional races. And one of the most winnable seats is New York's 11th district, where currently we have Max Rose holding the seat. And we're talking to his challenger right now, Nicole Maliotakis. Nicole, welcome to Connor's Corner. Thank you, Mike. Great to be with you again. There are a lot of issues floating around right now. I mean, I guess the one that's really hitting the headlines locally is bail reform. Can you tell the audience exactly what happened? And, and you know, I know you voted against it, but if, if you can explain what's going on right now. Yeah, I think it's important for New Yorkers to understand what uh, bail reform means. And really what it was is a, a complete overhaul of our criminal justice system, which makes New Yorkers less safe. And this was a, a bill that was snuck into the state budget um, on April 1st. It was passed in the middle of the night when we were um, adopting the budget. And it was something that should have been taken up separately. We should have had hearings and, and done it right. And unfortunately, the governor decided to jam it through in the middle of the night and uh, later on figure out the consequences and, and what needs to be changed. And that's exactly what happened here. I voted against this bill because I knew from the beginning it was going to create all sorts of problems. And we're reading about those problems now every single day in the newspaper where people who have been arrested for serious and dangerous crimes are being released back onto the street. And basically what it means is when someone gets arrested, even if they confess uh, to the crime, they are released back onto the street and uh, to return on their own recognizance on their court date to be tried. Now, the issue with this is um, they're not – they've taken away judicial discretion. So before, a judge used to be able to decide whether that person 
was reliable to return to court. But in addition to doing that, they, they're not even considering someone's dangerousness to society. So we saw a number of uh, serious incidents. A, somebody with 24 prior arrests punched a police officer. We saw uh, two Orthodox women, women assaulted. Um, we saw a number of people assaulted on the streets of New York with people that had extensive criminal history. And those individuals were arrested and then released back onto the street. Um, and, and, and what's happening now is we have to rely to, to, to trust that they're going to return for their court date and that they're not going to hurt someone else in the meantime. Um, some of the crimes that are eligible for this type of release it are criminally negligent homicide. Uh, we, we had someone who was uh, arrested in upstate New York for uh, slashing a woman's throat. He had been in prison since July and was released on January 1st because it was no longer a bailable uh, crime. Also criminally uh, 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 vehicular homicide. So in this case, we saw in Rochester on Christmas Eve a young mother of three who was killed by a hit-and-run driver, who, by the way, this was an unlicensed driver who was in our country illegally. He fled the scene. He was caught, and he was charged, and he confessed to uh, committing this crime, and yet he was released back onto the street. And, you know, somebody like that in particular who is in the country illegally is much more of a flight risk uh, because there's no uh, reliable way to track an individual down. Um, and I did end up picking him up, and he is being you know, detained by them. Thankfully, they were able to find him. But um, even in cases where somebody is a flight risk, we just saw uh, just last week uh, in Long Island an individual who had extensive history of drunk driving. He had 12 prior convictions. Six of them were felonies. Five previous times he didn't show up for court on other cases, and they still released him back onto the street uh, after and, and, and because he wasn't complying with a court order to have an interlock uh, on his interlock device in his vehicle to prevent him from driving, he was released, drove drunk, killed someone, was arrested, and then released again. That's how unconscionable this law is, and that it needs to be fixed. And we have been crying uh, for the governor to join us, the Democrats to join us to fix this bill. Unfortunately, people. Uh, all levels of government, from those at Mayor de Blasio's level and the city council who want to close Rikers Island and are looking for every way to empty out the jail, to those on the federal level, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and my opponent, Max Rose, uh, on the congressional level. They have vocally supported this in the past. Now some are trying to backtrack, uh, and I'm glad that some are seeing the light and saying that this has been wrong all along. Um, but that's our big fight in Albany this year is to get the governor to come to the table and fix what is a very dangerous law, putting New Yorkers at risk or reading about those consequences every single day. Changing the subject, getting back to Max Rose, your opponent, how did he vote on impeachment? Well, so Max, Max interestingly enough, has been all over the place on this issue. And he had originally told the people of Staten Island, Southwest Brooklyn, that he didn't support impeachment because it was divisive for our country, which I agree with. Uh, and then one week later, after getting a little pressure from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Socialist Squad, he flipped and voted for uh, impeachment of the president. And I think that, uh, you know, well, I know that people in this district are very upset with his vote uh, because they sent him to Washington to focus on important things like securing our borders, like improving our health care, like reducing the cost of prescription drugs, like tackling our opioid crisis, 
like bringing infrastructure funding to New York City. And none of those things have been accomplished, none of them, because we have a Congress now that refuses to work with the president. And whatever successes we're seeing, by the way, whether it be and more so we could say those economic successes, have been done by the president on his own. So imagine, you know, we saw USMCA. Um, which is the U.S. Uh, and Mexico-Canada agreement, which is a better agreement than NAFTA, be enacted by our president. We also saw the deal with China. Uh, we, we're seeing great things happening in the economy, but these are things that the president is doing on his own. Imagine if he had a House of Representatives that was willing to work with him, particularly here in New York City. We don't have one uh, Republican or conservative or even a reasonable Democrat who didn't vote to impeach the president. Um, so, so now... Uh, my election, I think, is very important because this, this seat has historically been uh, the one that has been a counterbalance to the Jerry Nadlers and the other uh, liberal members from New York City. And particularly now with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, we need a counterbalance, and I would provide that. So this seat, although it represents Staten Island and Southwest Brooklyn, it's important for the entire city and for the hundreds of thousands of people that feel that AOC and Jerry Nadler – and uh, Max Rose are not representing their views, and they want to see a House of Representatives that instead would work with our president to get these things accomplished. I think it's worth repeating. Right now, there is no single member of Congress from New York City. That is a Republican. That is a Republican, right. And and let me ask you this. You know, some people I know, and it's hard to believe what they tell me, you know, well, our congressional race is really that important. I mean, what really changes when Congress changes? And, and I'm flabbergasted, but maybe you can address that issue. Well, I, I think what's, what's really important is that uh, if you look at the dynamic in Washington right now, it's severely broken. And the House of Representatives under Nancy Pelosi have been focused on one thing, and that is undermining – the election of 2018 and trying 2016 and trying to impeach the president and instead of allowing uh, you know the election to take place in 2020 and let the people decide um, they are choosing to spend all their time and our tax dollars on this partisan mission um, and and what I would argue is that you know for New York City in particular, where we need infrastructure money for our roads, for our bridges, for our subway system to upgrade our signals into a 21st century uh, system, uh, we need a Congress that's willing to work with the president regardless of who that is, whether it is a Democrat or a Republican. And unfortunately, um, we have not had that. And in particular, having a president that's from New York City, I think, was even a, a, a better opportunity for us to be able to deliver for the people of the city. And, and they failed to do so. So I think it's important to know that, you know, we, 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 we have to have at least one voice. Even if you're a Democrat, you should want at least one Republican voice representing us in Washington to provide some type of balance. Because right now what we have are socialist Democrats like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And then other Democrats in the delegation that are afraid to stand up to her. So everyone's moving more and more to the left. They're, they're engaging in this, these partisan games um, and instead of actually focusing on the work that needs to be done and what the taxpayers have elected them to do. Somebody wanted to learn about your campaign, wanted to volunteer, wanted to contribute. How do they do that? Well, my website is Nicole4NY.com, and so I urge people to go there. If they want to volunteer, if they want to make a donation, I appreciate that. But they should also really go there to sign my petition. I have a petition to stop the bail law. It lists the crimes 
the majority of the crimes that are eligible for this ridiculous uh, law, and it allows you an opportunity to sign a petition, send a message to Governor Cuomo. We've had over uh, 16,000 people sign that petition already to voice their opposition because this is a law that needs to get fixed sooner rather than later because, as I mentioned earlier, we see people are getting hurt. Uh, people have even gotten killed. And so we want to make sure that we're, uh, we're putting public safety first and that government, which is one of government's paramount responsibilities. And right now they've failed in numerous ways. So again, not just the bail law, but the sanctuary city laws of Mayor de Blasio that have protected uh, an individual who stabbed his own father, was arrested, was released back onto the street Thanksgiving Day, uh, despite there being a detainer request from the federal government to deport him, and weeks later killed a 92-year-old woman in Queens. Uh, and, and something like that should not be allowed to take place. There's no reason why we are protecting people who are in our country illegally and committing these heinous crimes. And so, you know, again, my opponent for Congress, Max Rose, not only supported the bail law, he supported the closure of Rikers Island, he supported also Bill de Blasio's sanctuary policy, um, and, and this is a trifecta for disaster. So we need to replace these individuals who feel this way about public safety and the lack of, and, 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 and want to put New Yorkers at risk by supporting these policies, um, and instead replace them with people who have common sense and, and, and support law and order and want to see the lawlessness in our city and state end. Nicole, one more time. Can you give the website? www.nicoleforny.com. Okay, Nicole, keep, keep up the good work. We hope you're in Congress next year. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. 
I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now, our next guest is Marty Brownstein. He has a book out about the Holocaust, World War II. The name of the book is Two Among the Righteous Few, A Story of Courage in the Holocaust. Welcome to the show, Marty. Well, thank you for having me on. What's the book about? This is a true story of courage, compassion, and rescue. It's about this Dutch Catholic couple named Franz and Mien Weinacher, who during World War II when their country was under the brutal occupation of Nazi Germany, they got involved when most did not, and in the end, they saved the lives of more than two dozen Jews from certain death. Can you just, for the, for the audience, especially the younger people, can you describe the situation? What was happening in, in, in Holland back at, at the beginning of World War II? Yeah, good question. You know, when the war broke out in Europe in September of 1939, the Dutch government declared neutrality, but that didn't get honored. In spring of 1940, May 10th in Holland, as Nazi Germany starts conquering through Europe, they were on the list and they got conquered within the week. And then that occupation and control by Nazi Germany was five miserable years, the worst and longest of all the countries in Western Europe. So freedoms were gone. If you started to get into any form of resistance, it was crushed. You're arrested. You're going to be deported to concentration camps. And, of course, the number one priority was go eventually get the Jews, route them out of society, and deport them to the death camp. So it was a very difficult and dangerous time. Now, how efficient were the Nazis in rounding up Jews back then? Very efficient. And and in, in every country they occupied, which was nearly 20 in Europe, and they had a few others that were helping them, they went about it systematically to first pass laws to pretty much legislate Jews out of society. And then you round them into ghettos so that they're now secluded, and then it was bit by bit put them on the trains and deport them to the death camps in Poland. So they were very, very efficient, and most people don't know what's going to happen, and the Jews don't. They're not telling the world what they're doing, and so they could do it, and if anyone sensed you that doom was coming, as some do, your only hope was going to hiding in most cases, and who's going to help? Not many were willing to help. That's why the book's Two Among the Righteous Few, not Two Among the Righteous Many. Who Who is this couple, the Weinachers, who were they? Yeah, good question. Ordinary people who end up doing something very extraordinary. They were just this young married couple. By the end of 1942, they already had four small children under the age of five and just living in the countryside. And after the war broke out, Franz was a laborer at a grain mill nearby, and he took a leave of absence. And he starts this black market business of selling meat and eggs to people in the cities. That's a two-hour train wide west for him. And he was a good salesman doing it. And, of course, if you get caught, you're going to be thrown into jail. Meat and eggs was scarce in the country, too, when he's doing this, because the Germans had taken away a lot of the cattle and chickens for their own needs. And spring of 1943, as he's on one of his business trips in Amsterdam, this is how it all started, a call for help. This customer he'd done business with before, before he leaves the meeting, says, would you be willing to help? And he explains, we've got this young Jewish girl hiding here in Amsterdam. Would you take her home for, say, three weeks to the countryside where you live and 
Franz innocently said yes, and that's how it all began. That's how it starts. He takes this young girl into into his home. What kind of yeah. danger was he in doing that and his, his wife? Yes, and in the beginning, interesting enough, they don't know. They're somewhat naive about it, but it picks up over time. But if the Nazi authorities found out and they actually paid people to rat others out and people were doing that, you got thrown into prison if not deported to concentration camps in Poland often you got executed on the spot and hung up in the na- in the neighborhood. So the dangers will increase over time because it didn't just end with one person. It, it picks up over time, and then they got the sense of what this was, and they had to certainly be very careful of in time, which was very interesting. Franz also will build a rescue network in their local little towns, recruiting others to take Jews into their homes. And at the height of this, they often had up to 10 Jewish refugees in their own home with their four small children. So it went on for two years that they lived on this edge of danger and risk. Now, again, you know, the neighbors, people mm-hmm. people were paid to, to, to rat them out. So what did they tell the neighbors? Yes. Some know. You know, here's the advantage you have in the countryside versus city. People aren't living close, you know, on top of each other. So homes are more spread out. So not everybody sees what they're doing, but part of small town living People know of each other, and there's the subject of a lot of gossip during this period. Because if you come to the Weinacher home, the door is usually locked. We're in the countryside. Nobody locks the door. Knock and just come on in. And the shades were generally down during the day, not just at night as they were ordered to do. And so they were subject to gossip. But in those days, 1940s, people in the area didn't travel anywhere. And anyone that came from outside the area, the city folk, came by train. They were just so different. So... Luckily, in their area, there were no Dutch Nazis who would have betrayed them instantly. And so people generally, even if they didn't know, they would be quiet in front of a stranger. And so luckily, the neighbors and some will end up helping as taking people in temporarily. They don't get betrayed. But that was good fortune. It only took one. And there will be some local antagonists that they have to worry about, too. You mentioned something, Dutch Nazis. Yes. Uh, you know, there were people who corroborated. Absolutely. You know, what's happening in the 1930s, before the war breaks out in Europe, is these little fascist and Nazi-like parties were starting to get formed. It wasn't just happening in Germany, where Hitler's now coming to power, in Italy, where Mussolini's in power. They were springing up in many countries, including one in the United States, and the one in the Netherlands was known by its initials NSB. Small in number prior to the war, once the occupation by Nazi Germany was in full force, they became the third largest Nazi party in all of Europe. So through this period, you didn't just have to worry about the Germans who were in the country running it. You sometimes had to worry much about your fellow Dutch. All right. Well, when you started, they took in one person. How did it grow? What happened? Yes. In a short period of time, this one person, they only knew her by her false name, Freitja. They find out she's got a younger brother hiding in Amsterdam, and Mean tells Franz, go get him too. And then word starts to spread, and two former teachers come out from uh, Amsterdam with a girl at 17 who happens to be Jewish, and Franz and Mean say yes. And then came the pivotal moment. Stranger showed up in their doorstep one day. He doesn't say what his real name is. He goes by this code name, Long John, and he recruits them, and he's asking them, will you be willing to help? He's from a resistance group called the LO, the National Organization for Helping People in Hiding, that was getting a network built around the country to hide all sorts of people. And they asked Franz and Mean, would you be willing to help go recruit and build a network in your local area, and we can help fund you to do that, and you'd pay people. And then it really took off. 
and then they start, you know, the risk, the dangers, and the number of people they're helping. But they built it, and then through all the hassles and problems and dangers, they persisted, which is very amazing when you think about it. At their height, how many? What what was the maximum amount of people that they were helping shielding? At least two dozen, 24, 25 at least at the height of this, from in their house to within this network and lots of shifting people here, there, everywhere when problems kept happening. Give an example of problems keep happening. Sometimes I'll go with the rescue network. They had different areas of problems. And Franz would get a call from people who had a Jewish individual in their house. And they, Franz, you got to come. And then they tell Franz, this Jewish person we have here got exposed. Somebody came by. They noticed them. Authorities are going to find out shortly, Franz, and not only going to come get this person, they're going to come get us. We've been betrayed, and that would be the, the term you'd hear. So you've got to get them out of here now. And Franz couldn't convince those people to keep the Jewish individual any longer. Mad scramble, and it was always go try to find another place. And sometimes the Weinachers took that person in their own house temporarily so they could find another place and get that person in there. And so this was just constant. People would say, oh, this person's too much problem. I don't want to keep them anymore. Constant problems like that, just with the rescue network, let alone later on threats of raids, two actual raids by Germans on their house. So Franz nearly got deported off to forced labor in Germany. Constant problems, and they persisted, which is, again, so amazing when I think about it. There was a raid, and, and how did he get out of it? How did they get out of it? Yes. One of the things that helped, the first adults that they took into hiding was this young married Jewish couple, the Bars couple, and the husband, Lou, was an architect. And they were, the LO helped them get out of Amsterdam in the fall of 43. Lou designed and then worked with Franz to build a hiding room within their house. So they practiced that pounding on the door. You knew that certain knock. Everybody in the house could go like a fire drill real fast to get in the hiding room. So the very first raid have where the SS show up, they had the knock on the door, and they got in there in under a minute. And then when the SS2 officers come in, and they're pounding on walls and all that, you couldn't notice that, that if you'd never been in the house before. And Franz and Mean stayed cool, calm, and collected. And just... Uh, talking away with them like they're just some friendly neighbors who just stopped by. And, of course, that didn't arouse any suspicion. And after a while, they they just left and said, we may come back. But, phew, they dodged the bullet. This sounds incredible. Yes, thank Let's you. say the SS knocks on the door, and, and it's got to be extraordinarily difficult to, to get through that. Absolutely. No, good insight. That's what makes it so amazing that most people would have been panic-stricken. Because they're not coming in to play a friendly visit whatsoever. And they weren't very friendly at all. And Franz and Mean, just, I mean, in one instance of that first raid, there were two. One of the S officers, their arrogance helps. He sees a picture on the wall. What you're not supposed to do is have any symbols of nationalism or royalty. And the picture he sees on the wall, wall is Princess Juliana, you know, the daughter of the queen. And he looks at it very carefully, and then he turns to, Fran, uh, to Mean, and, she, and he says, who is that? And she says, that's my sister. Can't you tell? Oh. <laughs> you know, so I don't, you know, in essence, talk about being quick on your feet, to pull that off. And so there was the other raid. Franz immediately wants to say to them, hey, you guys want some sausage and beer? And no, it's their soldiers. They're looking. They thought they saw some chickens. They're looking for eggs. Ah! Guy next door, I think, has some chickens. And he just walks them right out of the house to it, and they end up coming back in. It's just, whoa. To do that under such pressure, 
is remarkable, and yet somehow they were able to pull it off. Now, when when was their area liberated? When did the Allies take control of the area? The Allies come into their area, southeastern Netherlands, in the fall of 1944. But I always say they weren't fully liberated. They pushed the Germans across the Moss River, which is where they were, and then they got stopped. And then they walked into Germany, on marching on to Berlin. So, well, you maybe could come outside. You're not safe. There's bombing still going on. Netherlands itself does not get fully liberated until early May of 1945, just before the war in Europe is over. So they were the last country in Western Europe to get most of the rest of the countries in Western Europe, France, Luxembourg, Belgium, all liberated by September of 44. So they lived under that cloud and threat for that whole period of the war. Pretty difficult. What was the the government administration like? You you know, back then, let's say in 1944, how was the government administered? Was there a mayor? You know, were there police? How close were the Germans, the SS? Yeah, well, they're running the country. So the Germans are running the country. They got their own man in charge, Arthur Seiss in court, an Austrian Nazi like Adolf Hitler. And he's got his own Nazi henchmen running the top parts of the country. And then they're using the Dutch to run the civil administration and the local law enforcement. I mean, one of the antagonists, the people they have to be worried about in their local area, was the local police chief, because he wants to stay on the good side of the Nazi authorities. That's their boss. Likely where the raids come from, at least the first one, likely he, he had his suspicions and he tells the Nazis. And so most of the time throughout the war, the Dutch in these government roles were just following orders and going right along. I mean, one of the big things that those people did in civil service is, you know, keep the records and help us identify the Jewish population. Fine. Very good. Law enforcement, help us go on the raids to go round up Jews. Fine. And so this was true of occupied Europe. It wasn't unique to the Netherlands that most people in those positions just went along. Only a handful resisted or some just got fired because they didn't seem like they were too interested. That helped the Nazis greatly throughout all of Europe. Do you have any idea of the percentage of people who just went along, those who supported the Nazis, and, and, and those like the, the, the Weinachers? Yes. Well, the, those like the Weinachers are the smallest percentage, those who actually get involved to try to help among the non-Jews, and you don't even hit 1% of the whole population of Europe. If you then go to the bystanders who just kind of look the other way, rough estimates, that's probably 80% of the population. And then in between are the collaborators and the sympathizers, you know, all those who are willing to help. And it varied by countries. Some were helping more than other in the whole roundup and death and murder and all that going on. So, you know, it was a time of hate and indifference that overtook Europe. Unfortunately, some of those things are still lingering on today. But that's why what made what they did stand out even more, because I always tell when I go into different groups with this all the time, often talk about if we had more people like the Weinachers willing to help, we wouldn't have seen over 11 million people murdered in the Holocaust. But they were rare, unfortunately. Now, I understand you from Chris, you have a personal connection to, to Yes, the yes. Spoiler alert for your listeners. When <laughs> okay. I, do, uh, I do public storytelling presentations is one of the things I often do with this. And so the audience knows going in, he has a very meaningful personal connection story, but they don't know what it is, and I don't reveal it to the very end. And then sometimes there's some uh, tears in the house because the reality of what they did uh, it really hits home. So I'll, I'll share that and you know, keep the secret here. But among the, the, <laughs> the two dozen-plus Jews that Franz I mean Weinacher saved, 
was this bars couple I mentioned earlier, where the husband's uh, an architect there, Lou and his wife, uh, Engeline Bars. And when they were able to get snuck out of Amsterdam, thank goodness they got out of there, and they probably don't survive staying there. Fall of 1943, Engeline Bars had a secret she could not keep secret any longer. She was already pregnant. How do you get a baby born to a Jewish woman in Nazi-occupied Holland? The answer is, it's impossible. And at this point, they had so many things going on with the rescue operation and many challenges and dangers. This was the most impossible. And yet Franzamin decided they'd take it on. And in brief, they performed a miracle because they got the baby born and they kept her safe along with her parents there until liberation finally came. And this March will be 13 years that I get to call that baby my wife, Leah Bars. It's a great Thank story. You. What happens to, to the Weinachas after the war? Yeah, good question. They, they, life had to go back to normal. And as I learned in putting this story from the children, is it took them six months to readjust to a so-called normal life. Franz had to go get a real job now, and they had a fifth child born after the war, and they just had to raise their family, and life went on. And, you know, they were never any great glory or notoriety. And that's, that was their lives until, you know, they lived to their mean died earlier. She died only in her 60s from heart condition. Franz lived a full life into his 80s. But interesting enough, and this goes to the title of the book, years later, thanks to some of the people they rescued, they sent information to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Israel, and its function that creates this honor called Righteous Among the Nations, where the word righteous comes from the book title. And they were given this official recognition. And this is the recognition that goes to the non-Jews who, during the course of the Holocaust, risked their own lives to try to help save the lives of Jews. Even if people aren't familiar with the term, they're often familiar with one of those righteous, Oskar Schindler. Franz and Weinacher actually got their official recognition 10 years before Oskar Schindler's came. And that, you know, gave a little moment of, for the local little towns in southeastern Netherlands, Franz and Weinacher are local heroes. But, you know, they're not known much in the country. And then when I stumbled in this story by accident, in May of 2009, on a trip to Netherlands with my wife, I met the five Weinacher children, and one thing led to another, and here I am now, well into nine years in the journey of not only written this story, but of course sharing it in a wide variety of audiences in multiple cities around the country. So I never expected it, but people keep, to your reaction earlier, thank you, people keep saying, wow, what an incredible story, wow, what an inspirational story. Keep doing it. So I have. What was the motivation of, of, of the Weinachers? Why yeah, did they do this? That's a great question, and I love that when it comes up in audiences, and I answer it in two ways. One is I don't know because as I put the story together, went back to the family, and they gave us a little self-published Dutch book that Franz had kind of put stories together before his death. Uh, the book only spoke to what he did with me, not why. So in essence, I don't know. In my journey, I have studied others who have gotten that honor, Righteous Among the Nations, by a few people, done some studies on samples of them. And while they came from a variety of backgrounds, many shared common qualities of character. And people often say, when you read the book, you can draw conclusions as to what those qualities are that answer the why question. Here are some of the few that some of the righteous share that fit Franz and me. One, the willingness to help. Two, risk taker. Three, a sense of compassion. Four, they weren't stuck with the prejudice and the anti-Semitism of the day, the fact that they thought you just treat people with respect as a normal thing to do. 
and, and being bothered by seeing and, and in time. They don't know so much in the beginning, but as they become more aware of the persecution going on, the idea of this intolerance, they thought, that's not right. You should try to help, and, and certainly a strong sense of ethics is part of their own makeup. Those kinds of factors that many of the righteous shared, I think, fit Franz and mean and probably answer the question why. Call for help came. Instead of running from it or turning people into the authorities, as some would do, they thought you're supposed to help. Now, did they know when they were doing this? I mean, you know, you hear a lot of stories. Did they know what would happen to their ward, so to speak, if they were captured? Not initially, but in time, yes, as it picked up. They knew that the danger was hanging over their heads and what would happen if they got caught and potentially their four little children could be pulled away too. And that they never kind of t- – it never hung in there as a, an obstacle. They just seemed to push it aside. For the people they helped save, most of them viewed Franz Amin as just very selfless. So whatever their worry or fears were, they kept it privately to themselves. It didn't stop them. They just thought this was some kind of mission to keep going. The name of the book, Two Among the Righteous Few, A Story of Courage in the Holocaust. The author, Marty Brownstein. Thank you for being on Connor's uh, Corner. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. When a desperate parent calls YCS seeking help for their child with special needs, We are there to answer the call. Our staff provides compassionate care to children affected by trauma, autism, or developmental disabilities. Can you help us provide the services needed to keep families together? Find out how you, your company, or organization can volunteer. Learn more at YCS.org. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. You know, Marty, Marty Brownstein and, and, and the story about the Weinockers, I mean, to me that is truly an incredible story. And it, it's almost impossible to believe that you would put your four young children at risk during World War II because it's not like the, you know, the Germans were easy to deal with or whatever at that time. It wouldn't take much for you to be sent into a concentration camp or even a work camp where you didn't know whether you'd get out or not. And, and you know, so I salute them. And getting back to Nicole Maliotakis, obviously this is an election year. And, you know, I, I know sometimes even friends come up to me and say, well, you know, it, it's really not that important who wins one of these local uh, elections, congressional elections, because really nothing really changes depending on who's in Congress. And, and I really have to disagree with that. This, you know, whole impeachment mess is there because the Republicans didn't hold on to the Congress. And if they don't take it back Whatever happens, it's going to be a mess. I mean, you know, I know that's my personal political opinion, but 
it is important to vote in congressional elections. A couple of weeks ago, we had one of our favorites, Burgess Owens, on. He's running for Congress in Utah, and I understand he's got a district that he might win. And, you know, it's important for guys like Burgess Owens. I think it's it's very important also for us to elect African-Americans who are conservative. I think that sends a strong message throughout the country. And, of course, Buzz Patterson, ex-military man, carried the football, so to speak, for Bill Clinton, wrote Dereliction of Duty about how Bill Clinton handled some of his duties as far as national security was, you know, back in the 1990s. And, of course, if you live in the New York City area, don't forget Nicole Maliotakis. I mean, I, I don't want to knock anybody else running for Congress, you know, in the New York City area, but she has a chance to win. And sometimes you get, you got to bet your chips on the horse who's got a good shot to win. And so if you're going to make a contribution, think about Nicole Maliotakis. You know, we do not have a single elected Congress representative from the Republican Party. And it, no matter what, it's never great when you have a one-party rule. That's where we're getting the messes with the bail reform, people are committing crimes, getting off on the street, the impeachment mess. Go out. Please vote this November. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.